day and welcome to another Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann, and today I'm getting stuck into my buying tips for a hot market. And I'm really excited to be arming you with all this, I guess, inside knowledge that I've accumulated over 13 years of being a sales agent and probably started investing 15, 16 years ago. And I really wanted to not only help you do it well, but avoid the costly mistakes that you might discover later. And today we've got a lot to cover from end to end of the buying process. I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of it. So let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth Property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialist servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here is your host, Jared Mann. So if you've been to any home open lately, you'd know that it's a seriously hot market out there in Perth and uh, many other capital cities of Australia. So I thought I'd cover off today my insider view of what I often take for granted about what I know about the buying process. I guess having been a sales agent for 13 years and having helped hundreds of our clients with buying, I often forget what I know that the average investor doesn't know. So I hope none of my buyers are listening to this, but even if they are, there's plenty that's going to help you here get a better deal for yourself. And in this market, it's not just about getting a better deal. It's about securing a property among lots of competition and also making sure that you don't make a mistake and uncover costly things later that you might not have been aware of. So setting up the whole buying process to be a smooth one and by securing something now, you know, when there's lots of other competition around a sale, even in two, three, four months, the property might have gone up 10, 20, 30,000, as we're seeing happening month on month at the moment. So first things first, you need to set yourself a budget. And that means I, I suggest that you chat to a, more, a finance broker. I wouldn't ever deal with banks directly unless you've got past experience with a specific lender and you want to stay with them. But even then, your broker can compare all the options for you, let you know which boxes you're going to fit in and which you're not. I was just on the phone to mine last night preparing for another purchase, trying to get back in, in, trying to get another investment property as soon as possible. Your situation doesn't always suit every lender. And when you look at which lenders are going to best take, take your situation well, then You can find that the lending terms and what's available and wait times for finance can be significantly different between all the different lenders. So find a good finance broker, get in touch with us and we can refer you to one. And then preferably get a pre-approval because there is very long wait times with some lenders at the moment, both for a pre-approval and for a contract to be processed once you do find something. So if you're able to start the process for getting a pre-approval and you may find that even if it takes two months, you might not have bought something by that point and then you can be one step closer to helping your finance go through quickly. You set your budget, you look at, you know, what you can afford, 
to spend, look at potential, you know, holding cost around that, you know, based on expected rent at that sort of price and what your interest rates are going to be and do a quick back of the envelope on rates and council rates and water rates and, you know, property management. And pretty much in this market, most properties are going to be neutrally geared. If not before tax, they'll be neutrally geared after you, you get your tax savings back. You just want to make sure that you can afford to hold it even in worse times ahead for yourself personally or for when interest rates start coming up. But rents are going to be coming back too uh, for a while still. So any future increases in interest rates are going to be offset by our increases in rents over the next six to 12 months. Then once you've got your budget set, preferably got your pre-approval, you at least need to have strong confidence that if you gave your broker a sale contract that you're going to be able to get finance because the, the last thing you want to do is go around looking at properties, getting your hopes up, finding one that you really like, putting an offer in and then finding out that things aren't as solid as you were originally told or that, you know, if you're just dealing with the bank and they haven't properly gone into things, then that could be devastating, especially with how hard it is to secure something. So getting your financial house in order is critical. Then before you start going out shopping, you might want to take a step back. Spoken in previous episodes about setting a plan and and thinking about the type of properties that might suit that plan. That then enables you to have a bit of a strategy for your purchase. Now, are you looking for something that's more of a passive buy and hold or something with add value potential to either renovate or subdivide or develop, that's very much going to dictate the suburbs that you're going to look in. So obviously older suburbs or suburbs that have more higher coding for developments, suitable properties or older properties that are suitable for renovation, you know, they're going to better suit those types of strategies. And obviously with a passive buy and hold you want to buy in the best suburb that you can afford the best quality suburb that you can afford now how do we actually go about the suburb selection so i've touched on in a previous episode how important capital growth rates are and i've done a study into 30 years of median price data I've put together a suburb selection uh, at every sort of price point that you can imagine from 250 to 300K all the way up to a million dollars plus. And what I've done with that is I've removed any outliers where I don't think there's a strong case for growth to continue as it has done in the past. Some of those outliers I've removed to places like Belga and Westminster that went through big regenerations and, and changes in their boundaries, et cetera, and changing of public housing in those areas, I don't expect their growth rates would continue for the same reasons that they did in the past, as an example. I look at the history. I like to invest based on past performance and then couple that with what I know of happening uh, with train stations, uh, gentrification of areas and are schools still popular and in demand? I'm very, very regularly looking on the, the school ranking sites for both primary school and high school, critical factors that will drive ongoing demand for an area. So you can also take a look at, I guess, 
the suburbs that have got a similar median house price and then take a bit of a deeper look as to where, where is the rental market at in each of these. So previously we had to worry about vacancy rates and whether we're going to find a tenant quickly. Pretty much across the board now you're under 1% for vacancy, so that's not so much a factor. But some suburbs are certainly tighter than others and some property, and especially for some property types, you'll find that tenants will be lining up at the door, whereas for others you might just get a handful. So we can also be consulted to see, you know, what are our rental chances for this type of property? Is it in demand? What are tenants wanting? And as we start to get deeper in this process, you can also consult with us to say, hey, Jared, what's this rentability of this likely to be? What's the resale potential? Don't want to skip steps. I'm going to jump back into where we were at suburb selection. So you can also take a look at the rental yields for similar median price suburbs. They're going to differ. And, and the, all things being the same, you'd buy with a stronger rental yield where you can get a higher ongoing rent for the same purchase price. And that's also going to make it more attractive to investors and help the, the shorter term demand with more people potentially coming in to invest in that suburb over one of the other suburbs in that sort of price point. You can then take a look at what has recently happened in the median house price and what are the trend in some of the other stats like average time on market and the supply levels. Now, not everyone has access to these things. Some of the websites around have them, like onthehouse.com.au has some helpful things on different suburbs. We've also got SQM that has different vacancy rates and other things that we use. And you can chat with the sales agent to give you some of these things. And I'm more than happy to help as well. So, you narrow down your list, preferably to one suburb at first, potentially two, because it, there is some suburbs are held very tightly and there may be very little coming up. So when we were looking for our home, we were looking over quite a broad area of Mount Lawley, Mount Hawthorne, Wembley, and some of the other western suburbs. And it was just a case of when the best property came up in those areas because each of them had, you know, strong histories of capital growth. Each of them had great schools. And so you can keep your search quite broad, but it does make it harder then to start getting a feel for values because what I find is if you don't at least bring some focus to your search, you're going to struggle to know what's good value and what's not. And certainly in this market, there be, can be a propensity to overpay just because you might have missed out on one or two properties before and you don't want to miss out on the next one and, and you know, there's always that fear, are you paying too much? So getting a feel for values is critical. Now, how do we do this? I would start by looking at past sales and get access to either sales data from a real estate agent such as me or you can go to places like realestate.com sold section and do a search in there for your specific property type and it can help to look at the property types that aren't exactly what you're looking for to then kind of box in what your property type is likely to be worth. So the sold section is very helpful but 
that's looking into the past. What you need to also be focusing on is what price are properties coming up for for sale? How quickly are they selling? And at the moment, I'm generally pushing price on everything that I'm taking to the market. And when there's very little on, I, I push it even further. And I'm finding that the market's more often than not there for that upper price. So you look at the past sales as a guide and depending on how hot that market is, you can expect the actual sales to be happening in the, the price bracket above. So I would very much be looking at the date of the sale and sooner the better. So sales that are settling in this month, you know, you place the most value on if they've settled in the same month that you're looking. And then, you know, you need to extrapolate out where they might have, might be today if they'd sold more recently. And I generally don't look outside of three months now. So some of the areas that people go wrong when they're actually comparing sales is that they don't go into enough detail with their comparisons. And because I appraise 40 to anywhere, I'm almost doing 60 appraisals a month at the moment, I'm used to looking into what a how do things compare and I'm very quick at getting up on value. So you need to obviously start with the macro of how does this location compare to some of the other locations in the suburb and that's why you do need that insider knowledge and to look at the discrepancies between prices for similar types of properties and to know, look at where the amenities are and to factor these in to how they affect value. But once you've got your location, it's understood generally when you're on a coastal suburb, closer to the beach is going to be better. When you're closer to amenities and closer to the school, it's going to be better, but not right on the school or right on the amenities. Other reasons for significant increases in prices when you're overlooking a parkland. Who doesn't want to want to buy overlooking a park? I certainly would. And when you drive down the street, and you can use Google Street View for this, how does the street present? So when we were looking to buy a home, I wouldn't buy in anything unless it was beautifully tree-lined and everyone was taking pride in their houses and the noticeable signs of renovation and, you know, there was the occasional house that had been knocked down with substantial houses rebuilt and you drive down that street, it just... It is an amazing feeling and an environment. Now, of course, you can buy on different ends of this spectrum. And as long as sure you can buy, the classic saying is worst house in the best street. And yes, you can buy in rougher streets, but I would be very careful about that, especially if you're not seeing any change happening at all. It's likely to stay the same bad and very hard to resell if you if you do come to resell the other thing i like to do when when i then get down to comparing the specifics of the property you've got to look at the size of the land and size of the living area you've got to look at the age built and how recently things might have been renovated you've got to then look at the level of finish throughout the property and how you know has it got quality finishings or are they tired and more dated You've got to look at whether it has a garage for a carport. 
if a carport is the norm for the area and there's a character element that prevents carports, get, prevents garages being done, then it's okay to buy what is the norm for the area. But if everywhere also has garages and you're looking at carports, you're going to look at can you enclose this to make it a garage or is it not enclosable and it's going to cost too much? So that's a big factor for people. And the other one is, does it have an alfresco or outside entertaining area? So fresco or outside entertaining area, obviously depending on the scale of it, is going to add a lot of extra appeal and it can be anywhere from you know, ten to thirty to 50000 in the difference in price. And so people often just focus on the, the house and the lit and the land size and, and forget about the alfresco until they go to throw a, a party throw their uh, housewarming party and uh, they've got nowhere to have everyone and entertain everyone. <laughs> but you'll think about it then. So next step is once you've got your head around the past sales and what properties are coming up at, with their for sale prices, I would also be coupling that with what we call an auto valuation. So realestate.com has some of these auto valuations. RP Data also has it and we have it, access to it as real estate agents and that's what the value is used, I guess, as a bit of a guide. And I often get asked how accurate are they and is it in, can it be used in place of a, a detailed appraisal from a sales agent? And they are very different things. You can cert- certainly only really use it as a, as a guide and how these auto valuations work and they are different and they have different algorithms but if a property is already on market the actual asking price can have a big influence on how the auto valuation is calculated and how they predominantly work is they look at what the property last sold for and when they look at what similar properties have sold for over the same time and they look at did the owner last potentially pay too high? How does it compare to others over that period? And then they, if the property's on market, many of them look at what the asking price is and how many days on market it's been and kind of factor that into loop into their algorithm to come up with their auto valuation. And they give you a confidence rate, uh, a confidence rating. So, if it's in the green and it's got high confidence, they'll also give you a range of prices that that it could differ between. So let's say the auto valuation comes up with 500k and it gives a range that it could be worth between 480 and 530. If you know that the market's hot, you could look at that and say, okay, it's probably going to be towards the 530 side. And then you can go deeper to look at the things like the level of finish and and how the things compare at the deeper level, like how does the location compare, how does the actual quality of the house compare. And I'd certainly only ever be using auto valuations as a guide and I'd place far more importance on a detailed appraisal from a sales agent. So keeping in mind as well that when you ask for an appraisal, a lot of sales agents can overinflate things to try to buy your business. I'm always very conservative and realistic on the appraisal I give. But when I look at going to market, we can talk about asking higher and maximising the best price possible that we can get. And so I 
very much differentiate between my appraisal and the asking price that we go to market. Many agents just would give you their asking price, which can be inflated, can leave you lead you down the the wrong path with making decisions to either sell or buy something. And so just be careful where you're getting your information from. Now, the next uh, thing we can look at into for getting a feel for values, which I did touch on, is ask an agent and not the listing one. <laughs> so it might be a bit obvious, but don't ask the sales agent that's selling the property what they think it is worth. You can ask that to get a guide, but certainly don't use it to inform inform the price that you think you're going to pay. When I say you, you do want to be chatting to the agent and getting as much out of them, but make sure you get information from other sources as well so that you can you know, get some independent view on things. And the final point to this getting a feel for values is you really need to see enough to know. So if you're the one that's buying the property yourself, then you have to get out there. You have to take all this background inf- information that we've looked at the past sales, the auto valuations, the you know chatting to other, chatting to an agent about what sort of price ranges the property that you're looking for is selling for, and then you have to hit the pavement. You have to see as many properties of your type as possible in person. I guess these days we can be aided by things such as the virtual tours that a lot of us are using as agents. I'm certainly using them on the majority of my sales now. You can use Google Street View to see what the streets are like. So you can at least eliminate properties. But I guess initially in your search, I'd be getting out to see as many as possible so that you can really get a good feel for how the one that, you know, you find that you really love might compare for pros and cons. And then you can really get a feel for what the value might be. Now, the other one, I love to do when I'm out there and chatting to agents is if you know that they've just had a property go under offer in the area, I would be digging deeper with them to uncover, if you can, what it might have gone for. So, oh, I see you just sold one, two, three, four Smith Street under offer. I see, how'd you go with that? I saw you asking this sort of price. Did you sell above the price or did you get in the range. Many agents love to tell you all about their, uh, you know, how how heroic they were on their sale. They might even tell you the price. If it's unconditional in finance, they might be even more inclined to tell you what price they got. And it's critical if you can get these snippets of what prices are actually going for that are under offer before they hit the sales record. And in my case of Buying our family home, we were able to get three very recent sales uh, information on that had occurred in the last two to three weeks, and that gave me the confidence to pay more for the house that we found and really wanted to buy. So without that, I was going to be using you know two to three month old data, and it, you know especially by then it's already dated. So. Getting the under-offer amounts is key, but of course, sales agents don't have to tell you until it settles. They really shouldn't be telling you until it's unconditional at least, but they can maybe at least give you a guide for what a similar place might sell for now based on what they got for that property is a good way to ask it. So when you're on all these websites, make sure you set up 
alerts. And my favourite site is realestate.com. Reba is also very good. So you can create your search, set your criteria, and there's very interesting things you can do with keyword filters. So let's say you've done a search in, let's take Joondana. So you might be doing a search in Joondana. You might be looking for three by twos. I'm probably not limited to that. You might include three and four bedrooms with two to three bathrooms. And let's say you wanted to include some keywords. So I would keep the search pretty broad when when you're just looking for a passive buy and hold. But let's say you're looking for a development, suitable property. Some keywords that you could include in there is things like subdivision or STCA, which is subject to council approval. You can include some of those keywords in the filters. And then you can save your various searches so that you can receive notifications when anything comes on the market. And these are great because you really need to be getting told and, and making notifications for at the time that something comes on, not weekly because it can be sold by the time you pounce on that at the moment. Set your notification for at the time something comes on or daily if the site doesn't go any more frequent than that. And then you'll be notified by email. You can jump on the real estate agent for early access and and try to get through before the home open. Many um, agents will, such as me, I, I would gather interest as much as possible for that first time open and have everyone through when I generally don't show people through beforehand, but some agents will. Get your alerts all set up, then you're going to know when stuff hits the market. And the next key thing to do to get all your feelers out there is to bring up your favourite website, look at the sold area and look at which agents have sold the most properties in there. And then I would specifically reach out to each agent, give them a call, have a chat. You can ask them some of the questions above. What are I'm looking for a four by two family home, you know, with this? Or I'm looking for an investment property that has this. And what what are you seeing these properties sell for in the area at the moment? How long are they taking to sell? And you can then dig deeper depending on the type of property you're looking for. Oh, what sort of rent do you think you might get for that? Okay. So you're just bringing, you know, you're finding out all this information over time with every agent you speak to. You tell them exactly what you're looking for and then you submit that through. The the easiest way to get it to them is to say, look, I'm going to send that through on one of your past sold properties now. Can you look out for that and let me know if anything else comes up? And some of them will have advanced alerts when a property does hit market. Some of them go out to just their databases first and and have off-market sort of opportunities before they put properties on market. And I would also chat to the sales agent about, especially if you're looking for a rental property, you could say to them, hey, do you guys have a rent roll of properties under management? Do you think there could be an owner within there that wants to sell? And uh, because you're open to having a sitting tenant, Now, there's always the possibility that we'll have something that could suit you too. We do have 730 investment properties. Our owners are looking at selling all of the time. One of them may just be open to an offer so that they can have a smooth sale without going to market, keep the tenant, and we just transition things over to you. So that's a really great one. And chat to them, then confirm in writing afterwards what your criteria is. 
and put each of these agents in a follow-up spreadsheet of, of sorts. So create yourself a spreadsheet. You've got the suburb. You've got the agent agency. You've got the agent. You've got their email and phone number all in uh, columns across. And then you would have la- date last contacted, uh, criteria sent, yes, no. So if you think that every sales agent you speak to is going to remember you, a lot of them, by the time they hang up the phone, their phone's ringing again. They're on their emails. They've, they might have completely forgotten about your conversation. The good ones will save your details, will let you know when something's coming up, but don't expect that for the majority. So you've got to continue to follow up with them, build a relationship, let them know you're serious, that you're, that you're pre-approved if you are, let them know that you can make decisions quickly and to let you know as soon as anything comes up that might suit. So when you've got your follow-up spreadsheet, you can see the last date that you contacted the agent. And I would do this once a week. I would go through, if I haven't spoken to someone in two weeks, I would just give them a call. Hey, Jared here again, checking in. Do you have anything coming up that might interest us? Make sure you keep us in mind. And, you know, I would look. I initially just started with the agents that had the most listings sold in an area in the past and the most listings that I saw for sale. Then I built it out to about 10 agents and I befriended as many of them as possible and uh, then you stay top of mind. And then you can also ask some of them to, you know, if if you've really got a good relationship with them, as I did in the end, when your dream home does come up, you can ask them for their view on it and I'm also happy to give you my two cents as to what I think uh, of the property, what I think it'll sell for, what's the resale potential. And especially if we're renting it, we can give you input then on the rentability, what uh, factors we might need to improve to meet compliance or to attract a better tenant. We can tell you the rental price and you know how long it's likely to take to rent. So all of these things we can give you input on when you get really serious on a property. And likewise, just because I'm a sales agent, I don't know it all either. So I was reaching out to one or two other either sales agents or buyers agents uh, to get their input on properties that we were really serious on. So it always helps to have that second or third view on things. And especially when I've in the past looked at either development or subdivision sites, I would involve the rest of my team to vet things and go through due diligence with me and to really look at what things I might be missing. So let's say a property's come up, you like the look of it online, you tend the inspection and what are some of the things that you might want to look out for? So I would very much be paying attention to the two next door neighbours. I often like to go and knock on the door and meet them and see. I would see if they're tenanted, I would see if they're homes west public housing, I would really be wanting to make sure that they're well presented and and not going to drag down your value if you ever come to sell. Most owners, most buyers don't think about that. I would also look for other potential red flags such as is there HV power lines that are close by, is there sewerage sumps that are near directly backing onto it, Is there uh, car bodies in the street or lots of shopping trolleys around? Those are red flags to me as soon as I 
see them and they're going to affect the value. So I've also developed inspection checklist. So if you do want to help with any of the things I've discussed today, you can uh, head along and request a strategy session with me. And even if you just want our inspection checklist or you want our contract templates, which I'll mention in a minute, or if you um, you know want my input on your suburb selection or a bit of other guidance, always happy to help on the buying side. And so I've developed an inspection checklist and I've got one for an investor and one for if you're looking for your home. The reason I did it is I found myself getting so emotional when I found a property that I really liked that I'd actually overlook a whole bunch of important things. And especially when you're buying older properties, you know, you don't notice at the time because you don't think, has the roof been redone? Has the electrical been, been redone recently? There's a whole range of things that can be very costly if you overlook them. So this inspection checklist I would use to ground me, to make me logically think through the things that I need to look into. And sometimes I wouldn't, uh, you know, work them all out at the time of the inspection, but it then gets me to go and check into them later, the more serious that I get. So obviously, if you go along to the property and in the first five minutes you work out that it's not for you, you don't have to continue with your inspection checklist. We've all got better things to do than fill out paperwork, but the keener you are, the more reason there is for such a thing because I find that when the emotions rise, your thinking abilities drop and it was really (laughs) interesting for me to notice that in myself and be aware of it and that's why I created this inspection checklist and does have other things on there like you know is there any chicken to is there any you know other red flags that i mentioned earlier you've inspected the property you like it enough anyway to make an offer so what are some tips around negotiation so i would very much be asking the agent is there any other interest in the property they're probably always going to answer something positive in nature then you can say, is there any other offers that you've received? Can you please let me know if you receive any offers? And there's always the question, I guess, for a buyer, do you be first to make an offer or do you decide to hang back, see what other offers come forward and then potentially if there is other offers, do you come in last and try to hold back until the agents gathered the interest together, found out where the market's heading and then They can give you a bit of a guide as to what you'd need to pay and then potentially come in last over the top of everyone. So it really does depend on the property type and knowing how much interest there is going to be in the property. So look at how many people come along to the home open as a guide. Now, I can sometimes have 10 people along to a home open and that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to you know, get two to three offers. I might get zero offers from the 10. It really depends on the reaction and whether buyers see value. Sometimes I can only get I only get three people to a home open and two of them might want to make an offer. So you I would be listening and looking at the reactions of the other buyers. And it's classic when you hear little ooing and ahhing noises and general excitement. Property is not hitting the right mark with people. So you 
can be there's nothing wrong with being first but it does give the agent some leverage to then a good agent like me will go and let everyone else know that has come through the home open that we've been asked to write an offer and we'll be presenting all offers that evening and that just helps me spark other interest and find out if anyone else is keen and uh but this, there can also be a bit of a danger where if the agent doesn't realise you're interested in the property, a sloppy agent might write up the offer, not tell any other buyers that they've written one, not let you know about the other interest in the property, and you may actually miss out on it, which happens quite regularly. So I never want a buyer to miss out if they were thinking about making an offer, and certainly I want as many buyers competing in a property as possible. So... When it comes to negotiation as well, I'd be trying to get a guide from the agent as to how that offer amount is. I would ask them, is there anyone higher than me? They may not answer. I would ask them, how much do you think I need to pay to secure this, to win this? They may not answer that either, but some will give you a guide. Some will, some of them will tell you straight up where you need to be. And I would very much be, I guess, blending that feedback with all the homework and the preparation you'd done previously from getting a feel of values, looking at auto valuations, the other, you can get some feedback from other agents and feedback from me. Once you've got all of that together, you can kind of work out a maximum price that you might pay for it. And it's obviously a bit different if it's your home or if it's an investment property. But I guess in the grand scheme of things as well, I wouldn't be afraid in this market to pay a little extra and it might be ten or 20000 depending on obviously the purchase price and how that factors into the overall 10000 on a million-dollar-plus deals, very little extra, um, but it might be a lot if you're buying at 300000 So I wouldn't be afraid about paying extra for the right property, especially when it does tick all the boxes and doesn't have any red flags and does pass your inspection checklist and you know it doesn't and it has it is in a good street with you know in a quality area i would not be afraid to pay extra because even in a matter of months you can find that the market's moved up again and will then be even higher than what you might have paid and i fully expect it to keep doing so we've only really just started this growth period and there's plenty of blue sky ahead so be willing to pay extra uh, for properties. The other thing is that I'm often worried as a buyer myself if no one else is interested in the place. So I'm much more comfortable paying uh, more for something when I'm competing against other buyers because if I'm competing now, there's a better chance that when I come to sell the property, buyers will also compete. But if there's no other people interested, you have to think that it's probably overpriced or they genuinely haven't seen the property, like it's off market, then you know that's great. You can have a go at it and you aren't going to have competition. But don't be afraid of, of competition and, and other interest in the place. And a lot of buyers uh, work that out the hard way. So they shy away from uh, competing um, they miss out on two, three properties and then they get ultra desperate. The market's moved up, you know, 50 to 100 grand since the time they started looking and then they are willing to pay extra and they actually pay too much. So 
Don't be afraid to compete. Now, final thing I wanted to mention, I've just touched on negotiation and the price to pay. The other side to that coin is how to put your contract conditions together when making your offer. The majority of buyers don't realise that they can put forward any conditions they want. In my 13 years of selling, I've had very few buyers change the conditions that are part of my template. Now, thankfully for the buyers that I sell to, I go very deep to ensure that we warrant electrical, plumbing and gas items being in working order and I believe that I want to sell a a property that the buyer knows as much about and so that they're getting what they pay for. But a lot of other real estate agents don't do the same diligence on a property before going to market. They don't know what is not working or what is working. They don't know if things have been approved or not approved and they don't inform the buyers as well as they should on any of these things. So there can be a lot of hidden things both to the seller, to the agent and certainly to the buyer and it is very much buyer beware. So you want to be including building and pest inspections that are written in your favour and preferably to your satisfaction. You want the building inspection to cover maintenance items or at least minor defects, so not all of them do. And you would want the them to have to be done after you've gotten your finance. So I would suggest you, you get your finance approval and then you have seven days or so to get your building and pest inspections done. That way you're not outlaying for those reports until you know you've got your finance. Worst thing to do is to get the reports, pay for them, and then have your finance decline. It's wasted money. So if you do make the building and pest to your satisfaction and and possible to terminate without penalty, that way if you get a large maintenance item come up, you can go back to the seller, ask them for a reduction, and if they're not willing to do it, you can effectively terminate because you're not satisfied. But if you don't have such a clause in, you'll be committed to to settling and you'll have some large expenses that you didn't factor into your purchase price. And the other thing to include on there is warranties. And I mentioned that I provide them as standard to the buyers of my properties just so that they've got peace of mind that things are all working. So you want to include electrical, plumbing and gas. And when I buy properties, I would include as many other things as possible. So I include that retic and risers are, are working and I include, you know, pool equipment and pumps. And if there's a bore, I would include that. Uh, make sure the alarm is mentioned, you know, all the, all the things in working order because it's impossible and you'd drive the agent nuts if you went around and checked everything at the home open. You don't need to check everything. You just need to include a warranty that it's all working and then you would come and check it at your final inspection. So I know we've covered a lot today from setting your budget, choosing your strategy, how it guides your suburb selection, getting a feel for values with past sales and input from agents, then looking at auto valuations, getting an input from me, for instance, on uh, potential pricing for the properties that you're looking at, seeing enough to know, and then registering your alerts on realestate.com, reaching out to agents and letting them know your criteria and having your follow-up spreadsheet, 
And then finally, when the right properties do come up, inspecting them, looking for the red flags, using your inspection checklist and some tips around negotiation. We've covered a lot today, haven't we? And then some of the contract conditions you should be aware of. And if you do want any of the resources I've mentioned, make sure you request a strategy session. The link is in our show notes. Thanks for listening today and I'll see you on the next one. 